Buddhist Geeks Discover the Emerging Face of Buddhism. Episode 211 Optimizing Awareness in Organizations. We're joined this week by Rich Fernandez, Head of Learning and Organization Development at eBay, to discuss his current effort in bringing mindfulness based practices into the workplace. Buddhist Geeks is supported largely by the generosity of our listeners. If you like what we're doing, please consider making a one-time or monthly recurring donation by visiting BuddhistGeeks.com forward slash donate. Hello, Buddhist Geeks. This is Vincent Horn, and I'm really thrilled today to be joined by a very special guest, Rich Fernandez. Rich, thank you so much for taking the time to geek out with the geeks, the Buddhist ones, that is. Hello, everybody. My pleasure. Thank you for, uh, for having me. It's a great pleasure to have you on. And, and, you know, it's funny looking at your sort of biographical background. You are a bona fide geek. You, you, you are the real deal geek. You, yeah. Your background is actually in technology in the tech world. Um, you're the senior director of learning and organization development at eBay. So you right. have a, a huge role there in overseeing some of the leadership development, talent management, the organizational development there at eBay. And then you yeah. also have a rich history and background with Eastern philosophy, meditation. You have a black belt in Kung Fu. So you've got this other sort of uh, side life, I guess you could say. And that's also really informs your work. And sort of the convergence of the two, I know, has been coming about not only in your work, but also in your participation in this recent Wisdom 2.0 conference series, which has been happening now for a couple of years. So yeah. it's really cool to have you on, and it seems like we're going to be able to talk about some very fascinating stuff at the intersection of tech and business and meditation. So uh, it's great to have you on. Thank you, and I sure hope so. You know, I think that convergence that you described there, Vince, is something that is really present and really sort of urgent at this moment in time. I think we're at an inflection point where the evolution of consciousness, of mindfulness, of being fully present in the here and now, as we like to geek out on, on the Buddhist side, is increasingly finding uh, resonance in organizational life, whether it be private sector business, such as eBay, or even other sectors, mm. such as education, healthcare, etc., but what I'm, I'm really hearing from a lot of my colleagues and anecdotally and also from the research is that there's this increasing convergence. It's almost as if with the evolution of technology and how we're geeking out there, we've optimized our machines, our software, our algorithms, our data bases and data analysis capabilities. What comes next is optimizing our awareness and our consciousness. And I think that's increasingly something that is becoming paramount and evident in organizational life. Mm, thank you. That's fantastic. I think we can just finish the interview right there, right? <laughs> it's <a> great. <laughs> well, that that would be the beginning, in the beginning of the work, but perhaps the end of the interview. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes, and 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 this is great. What you're just saying is a is a beautiful way of talking about like an overview of of kind of what's needed, and hopefully yeah. then I can ask some good questions and we can flesh some of this out because it's really really rich topic. And first, I thought it might be helpful just to hear how you got into the arena of consciousness. And then also of business and then how you got into both of them together. Yeah, sure. Absolutely. And it truly is a journey that started on the personal front and has increasing integration in, in my work. 
I suppose I'd take it back to high school, really, um, where through a family member, a beloved aunt of mine, um, I was introduced to transcendental meditation. And, you know, high school is, uh, you know, a turbulent, tumultuous time, at least it was for me. And I actually found that that, that practice was really useful in many ways in, in helping me stay grounded and centered in in who I was and in just sort of the joyfulness of the experience at a time when, you know, there was so much pressure to not be mindful, if you will. So then I went to college. Uh, I grew up in New York and I um, kind of went to California, to San Diego for college at UC San Diego. And it just happened that I fell in with a group of folks, not surprisingly, perhaps that, you know, um, were vegetarians, where some of them meditated on their own. And there were course offerings actually through the college on Buddhism. And then also importantly for me in Tai Chi. So I, I started studying Tai Chi in college. And it was a really profound practice because there's that idea of the conceptual piece around, around Dharma or Buddhism and Eastern philosophy. But then there's the direct experience. Tai Chi and meditation kind of gave me this direct experience of presence, of mindfulness, of wholeness uh, that was very profound back in college. And I essentially continued on with the study of that through grad school eventually. Well, I should actually say after college, the one thing that I knew I wanted to do after college, the one and only thing that was as clear as day was I wanted to go to Asia, go and sort of delve a little bit more into Buddhism and journey to Thailand, journey to Dharamsala in India, where uh, so in Thailand, you know, Theravada tradition, and then went up to um, Dharamsala in India and studied, you know, at the Tibetan Works and Archives for about a month and went to some ashrams in India. And so just kind of integrated it into that formative period in my life. Eventually started working and then went to graduate school studying psychology because I was always interested in sort of the potentiation of, I guess, human capability and continued on with my my practice and then also really got deep into the study of classical Shaolin Kung Fu, Chinese Kung Fu, and studied for about seven years you know, which had strong Taoist underpinnings. So all of that was uh, my personal journey. And then eventually, you know, went on and work, started working in the field of uh, learning and leadership development and organization development, which brings us all the way up to, you know, my current role at eBay. And what I would say is that that personal journey was a personal journey. It was just that until very recently where I started hearing from others and seeing in the workplace and then going to conferences like Wisdom 2.0 and really having the realization that, there was an increasing convergence and need for mindfulness, presence, you know, wisdom in the workplace. And it occurred to me since my job title was about learning and organization development, one of the best ways we can develop our organizations was to bring these practices and introduce them into the organization. Mm, that's a great segue into this question that has been on my mind a lot because I've both worked for myself and also worked for other companies, other people. And, um, you know, there's this common understanding in, in many business environments, and it may not be voiced all the time out loud, but that there's this understanding that it's uh, not really safe or common to be able to bring your sort of quote unquote full self to work. There's a sense that we have to kind of fragment out different pieces of our life and only bring a certain dimension to the workplace. And I think this is pretty well known among people that work in different environments, but maybe what seems a little less clear is why that's the case. Like, where does this feeling of not being able to bring our, the fullness of who we are, you, you mentioned the word wholeness, our whole self, to the work environment? Yeah, I think it's a misconception both in terms of the paradigm and the culture of organizations, 
and the way they understand themselves and, and how to optimize for performance. So I think there's a mistaken paradigm there. But I also think we've been socialized and we ourselves carry into the workplace this idea that work is a means to the end of survival rather than a source of vitality and well-being and fulfillment. And I think that's an old paradigm in terms of the business or organizational context, right? It's often been called Taylorism, sort of a, a very transactional type of environment, a very instrumentalist one in which, you know, you serve and you give and in return, you transactionally, you, you get some sustenance. But that is, I think, an old paradigm that is not sustainable and increasingly in the workplace. And as workers, we, we understand that to be the case. You know, if we think about it, if we all worked from the age of 21 to the age of 67, 40 hours a week with a couple of weeks of vacation, that's about 40% of our waking life. 40% of our waking life spent at work. Wow. That's 90,000 hours is another way to think about it. 90,000 hours spent at work. And in that time, we will spend most of our productive time, energy, and attention. And so really sort of cultivating the quality of the time and of the attention is, I think, increasingly evident that that's paramount. And that's the case because it's not only something that would be fulfilling for the worker or the member of the organization, but it also is useful, if you will, in terms of business outcomes. Actually, there's a lot of data on this where in workplaces in which people feel committed, where they feel engaged, where they feel they're able to really give the best of themselves and exhibit a lot of discretionary effort, when people have that level of commitment and a feeling of wellness, they actually perform better. And studies have shown Corporate Leadership Council and the Gallup organization, both very robust databases studying hundreds of organizations and millions of employees. They've shown that people perform up to 20 percentile points better, for example, when they feel committed and engaged and well. And when they're thriving, they are 57 percent more productive and they are almost 90 percent less likely to leave organizations than others who don't have that experience of well-being. There's many different words for it, right? We're, we're geeks, we're Buddhist geeks, so we can call it mindfulness. Another way to describe it is overall well-being. Um, but one thing we know is that well-being, mindfulness, living a sustainable work and outside life are actually differentiators in terms of how effective organizations are. Whether your mission be bottom line driven, service driven, or whatever it is that the organization is purposed with doing. Beautiful. And this is something you've been really exploring more and kind of fleshing out in these Wisdom 2.0 conferences and in these dialogues. And uh, I know that you just finished participating in in the one that happened in February there in uh, Mountain View. And I wanted to ask you a question because you're on a really cool sounding panel. The panel was on how to integrate mindfulness into modern work environments. And on the panel, there's an employee from Facebook, someone from Twitter, and then also John Kabat-Zinn, who many people listening to the show have heard his name. He's the kind of the father of mindfulness in the West, if you will. And I wondered if you could say a little bit about that discussion, some of the things that you're seeing now are promising ways to bring mindfulness into the workplace, and how that looks for the actual people who are doing it. Because mindfulness... Even though it's kind of stripped of the Buddhist terminology, it still has some things associated with it that may make some people uncomfortable. Yeah. So what I would say is that there's different ways that this manifests, mindfulness that is, right? Whether it be programmatic, whether it be a part of the culture, whether it be a simple app or a piece of technology that's installed on your desktop that, you know, rings a bell for you to once an hour 
to remind you to be mindful. But underlying all of this, as probably just about everyone who's listening to this knows, is that mindfulness is a practice. And so introducing the practice of mindfulness, the consistent and dedicated exercise of mindfulness in the organization is kind of the underlying framework, if you will, that informs all these programs and all this architecture. What that looks like, something we've been doing at eBay is we've been bringing in mindfulness talks and seminars available to all employees, as well as uh, for some of our leaders and leadership teams. Um, and we've been bringing in people who have been, for example, monks. And just last Thursday, we had Greg Berdellis, who gave a great TED Talk, so go check it out on TEDx Boulder. And he came and talked about the art of happiness, living joyfully with meaning, purpose, and wisdom. The core technology that he was sharing was a mindfulness practice. He shared it with the employees. About 250 employees came and participated in the event. And he did a practice session. He spoke about the principles of mindfulness. He spoke a little bit about his journey. And then he said, well, now it's time to practice. And so it was impressive to see a room of about 250 Internet employees on a Thursday afternoon, right around 1.30 in the afternoon, sitting in silence for 10 minutes. So how it looks programmatically is one thing, right? Like I said, we're doing it at the level of all employee talks. We're doing it at the level of seminars as well as leadership development activities. The important thing is it's an introduction of a practice of mindfulness into the organization. And I would actually encourage everyone, by the way, so wherever you are and whatever it is that you do, chances are you work in an organization. Even if you work on your own, you interface with an organization of some sort. If you pay taxes, send your kids to school, buy just about anything, you're interfacing with an organization. And so for me, the fundamental question is, how do we show up mindfully and how do we practice mindfulness as we interact in, with, or around our organizations? And given some of the programs that you've been doing, what are some of the early, I guess, anecdotal results that yeah. you're seeing in eBay? Yeah, well, absolutely. That's a great question, and it's critical. And especially in the business context, you always want to draw line of sight to outcome metrics that influence the, the business results that we're always trying to drive towards. So the first piece of data that should be considered, I think, is just the mere response the felt need that's manifest in the fact that hundreds of employees are coming to this. So we've had now probably at least six all-employee type events that are mindfulness-oriented. The very first one we had was something called mindful leadership, uh, whether it be personal leadership and how to be personally efficacious in your life, or whether it be leading team or an organization. We had a speaker in named Michael Carroll who wrote a book called The Mindful Leader, and he also wrote a book called Awake at Work essentially integrating mindfulness and Buddhist principles in the ways we work and lead in organizations. Two very good books, and I recommend them. So we had Michael come on over, and, you know, I took him to lunch, and I said, Michael, listen, you know, I don't know how many employees we're going to get for this. It's a bit of an experiment. This was about a year ago, by the way. So in the spring of 2010 is when we ran this for the first time. And I said, we could get 10, we could get 50. I have 50 evaluation sheets here just in case. Well, that day, 200, over 200 employees showed up. And it's been that way ever since, whenever we've held these events. We've had a number of speakers come. For example, we had Phil Jackson's meditation teacher. Phil Jackson is the coach of the LA Lakers, formerly the coach of the Chicago Bulls. He's big into meditation as a means of team building and, and just kind of centering. And the guy who taught him and the team meditation and currently still works with the Lakers is a guy named George Mumford, a colleague of John Kabat-Zinn's actually. And he came out to eBay. 350 employees showed up for that. 
right? So wow. he talks about personal excellence, but as the core methodology of mindfulness-based practice that helps you center on what he calls your core mental strengths and the inner game. So he shared how he uses mindfulness to access those things with the elite sports teams he works with, and then he shared it with the audience. So first data point is that hundreds of employees are responding and engaging in this way, and so there's definitely a felt need there. The second one is that I was very deliberate in terms of doing outcome measures for this. So at a company like eBay and then many other companies, there's a concept called employee engagement that is very important. Because as I might have mentioned earlier, the extent to which employees report being engaged has real consequences for the performance and productivity and the ability to innovate of companies. And there's a lot of studies on this. So if anyone's interested in those studies, I would point you to the Gallup organization or the Corporate Leadership Council or the Great Places to Work Institute. All of them show that companies that report high levels of engagement over index on everything from S&P 500 performance against company stock all the way through the levels of productivity, of discretionary effort, of rational and emotional commitment of their employees. So it's such an important metric and concept that businesses take it very seriously. And in a lot of companies, including eBay, we actually measure it annually. And then we tie part of the incentive compensation of our leaders to the employee engagement level. And we want to be one of the best companies in the world to work for. So we say that until we get to the top decile or the top 10% of companies on employee engagement metrics, that's kind of our goal. So we incent leaders, you know, every year to make statistically notable improvement towards that 90th percentile goal and pay them accordingly on their bonuses. So that being said, what I was interested in doing was seeing what kinds of links there were between these mindfulness programs and employee engagement. So all the participants that come, we give them a survey once the program's complete and we say, you know, to what extent does this program make you feel, for example, proud, satisfied, make you feel like you want to do an extra effort, motivated, and that you would recommend the company? Because those four questions, which is, you know, satisfied, proud, motivated, and recommend the company as a place to work, those four questions are the same four questions that we pulse or survey our employees on every year, and they comprise what we call our employee engagement index. And so what we're seeing as a metric is that on a scale of 1 to 10, those who participate in these mindfulness-based programs report that their level of engagement is in the 9s and 10s. And then the commentary that comes out of them is just really profound as well. So overall, really, really strong outcomes and metrics. And we're continuing to track them and see overall you know, how they're going to, they're going to play out. So does that give a sense? Yes. Yeah, that's great. So it sounds like there's two kind of main data points that you're looking at. One is the interest, the interest level and the number of the sheer number of people that are showing up to these things. And then this other metric that you mentioned, the employee engagement index. Yeah. Wow. That's cool. I've never heard of that. Good stuff. The way to think about it is essentially engagement is an index of how committed people are to something or someone in the organization, how much discretionary effort they will put in, and then their intent to stay. And I find it really interesting that the teachings on mindfulness, the practice of mindfulness in some form, does affect that so dramatically. I mean, certainly as a practitioner myself, I I imagine there's a link, but it's interesting to hear some, you know, hard numbers pointing to that link. It's interesting. Yeah, yeah. You know, my last question is is along these same lines, because 
in an email, you mentioned that you're currently in the process of implementing, and actually you used the word installing, which I really liked, installing what you're calling or what's being called the Wisdom 2.0 architecture at eBay. I just was interested in hearing what that is and why that's important to you. Yeah. I don't want to give the impression that we're necessarily have this robust suite of offerings under this under sort of the wisdom and mindfulness work. I would say we're running some experiments and we're definitely testing it out real time with our employees. And we know hundreds of them at a time at points are engaging. So with that caveat, we have been calling it loosely the wisdom 2.0 architecture, the notion that you bring technology and wisdom together and that there's a certain convergence that happens there that's productive. The way it's been looking is, I like to think of it as you start with the individual or yourself and the mindfulness or wisdom practices that you create for yourself, you know, as you engage at work every day and beyond. We then think about the team and how it can help with team effectiveness and team cohesiveness. So we've actually, for example, run a mindfulness-based program based on the attainment of what we'll call a flow state. When you're in the zone and you sort of feel like, you know, you're firing on all your strengths and you're you're just kind of really present and really delivering the best capability that you have to offer. And you access that again through sort of a mindfulness-based practice. So we've done that in a few parts of the organization as team offsites to help with team building and team effectiveness. Again, as an experiment, and again, we measured it against employee engagement. Then we also have anecdotal commentary and data that suggests that employees who've gone through this really find it extremely helpful and extremely motivating, extremely engaging. So I said individual, team, then leadership. We think about leadership development. You know, We are beginning to think about how we can bring this in and, and design programs. And we have something called the Leadership Impact Program. Again, we've been running a bit of an experiment and we bring, again, that same sort of mindfulness and flow state-based approach. So the notion here is that state matters. State matters. Meaning that the state you're in, how you're being, and your ability to be mindful all matters in terms of how you show up as a leader. So we've actually structured a program or two around that. It includes elements of authentic leadership, and then even effective storytelling to kind of connect with and engage employees. So we're doing that sort of at the leadership development level. I wouldn't say we're doing that's not our hallmark program. That's not a broad-based program. That's being run as an experiment in a few pockets in the organization, but again, to good results. And then aspirationally, the fourth pillar, if you will, of the Wisdom 2.0 architecture would be at the organization effectiveness level. So if you think about the organization as a whole, what kinds of cultural norms and behaviors are valued, what language is being used, what heroes are being upheld. And the aspiration here is that since we're working at individual, a team and leadership levels, some of the practice and some of the thinking around mindfulness-based leadership will start to infuse at the organization level. That's the one area we haven't really actually started to do some work in. But the hope is, again, that at each of those other levels, the individual or in the employee level, the team level, the leadership level, it'll titrate upward and start to infuse the organization culture. My aspiration is that when we talk about organization effectiveness, we're also at the same time talking about mindfulness. Cool. Thank you. That's really cool to get a kind of glimpse of how these things are being operationalized in an actual organization. It sounds both exciting, new, and that it's fraught with some interesting perils, I would imagine, too. Could you say a little bit about are there any early indications of the limits of this type of approach to work or maybe even the shadow sides, if you will? 
Yes. Well, it's not something that's terribly well understood, and I wouldn't say we have a broad mandate for it yet. I would say that we don't quite have a full executive sponsorship. So it's, you know, myself and a few champions who are really trying to drive this forward in the organization. And, you know, I think eventually it will grow. Right. So in some of these programs, for example, I've seen, you know, individual contributor employees and I've seen senior vice presidents come to these programs. So everyone's getting something out of them. But what we don't have is the sort of senior level sponsor who says, yes, this is what we need to do, which then sometimes makes the progress a little bit slower. I would also say that these practices, the way I like to think about them is that they are oriented around positive disruption which means to say that they are disrupting a default paradigm that says you have to work until you can't do so anymore and that the other stuff, the mindfulness stuff, the wellness stuff is not important. We're trying to disrupt that paradigm, but I think it is the default paradigm of the day. I think at any time you're trying to drive change and positive disruption, you'll be met with resistance. And there have been some questions around why this is a wise approach. Is this approach aligned? Is it true to the objectives we're trying to obtain as a business? And, you know, we have some of those metrics around engagement that can show results. But there's also the fact that this work is nonlinear in nature, right? So engaging in these practices do yield good results, but you can't necessarily tie a linear result. Sitting for meditation and silence equals innovation or sitting for for mindfulness-based practice yields better performance outcomes. It's hard to necessarily draw that hard and straight line. But we know, not just anecdotally, but the neuroscience research, and there's a lot of it as well, we know that some of these practices definitely enable the positive outcomes, but I don't think they're well understood yet. I see it as my job, the job of those folks who are allies and anyone who wants to champion mindfulness in their organization to continue to bring that message, to take as much care and bring as much science as possible to bear here, but more than anything, to embody the work and to lead by example. And so whether or not you're in a position to change or help put in a mandate into your organization, I think simply by being able to practice on your own and really go deep uh, oneself in one's own practice that does have implications for the team and the organization and society. So I'm just really supportive of, you know, the geek community out there who who has their own practice. And I just want to encourage everyone. And I accept encouragement and support myself. I couldn't do this without the help of my friends, my community, my sangha, in order to bring kind of this message to the world and to the workplace, especially. Join us for the fourth annual Buddhist Geeks Conference, hosted in partnership with Mindful Cyborgs and Shambhala Sun from October 16th through the 19th in beautiful Boulder, Colorado. This year's conference will be exploring the convergence of Buddhism with modern culture and technology through informative keynote presentations, idea-packed TED-style talks, self-organizing community dialogues, and contemplative workshops and practice periods. This year's list of presenters includes the world's most quantified man, Chris Dancy, abbot of the village Zendo in New York City, Roshi Pat Enkyo O'Hara, and pragmatic Dharma provocateur, Daniel Ingram, as well as many others. For more information and to register, visit BuddhistGeeks.com conference. 
After nearly a year in private beta, the Buddhist Geeks Network is now open for any independent practitioners who want to engage in interdependent practice. You can find out more about the Buddhist Geeks Network by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. And if you'd like to join the community and join us in regular social meditation practice or other events that we host there in the network, all freely offered, you're very welcome to do so, again, by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. Love to see you there.